Good morning, family. We return this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking together at verses 6 through 10 together. The apostle writes, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so we return this week to our series in 2 Corinthians. And rather than moving on to the next section, as Ben mentioned, I would like to go back to these last several verses that I initially covered in our last time together two weeks ago. After returning from some time off, my fellow pastors made the observation that I wasn't able to cover these verses in the same depths as I had in the previous, the previous verses, so they suggested I go back and give a deeper dive into it. So I went back and reviewed the tape for further evidence, and they were absolutely right that I gave these verses out of a 56-minute sermon three minutes. So thank you, brothers. That is good observation. So I certainly agree with them as they are worthy of our return visit. So the focus of my sermon, you may remember, two weeks ago was on this great divide, and I'm calling this a return to the great divide. And that great divide that Paul speaks about is what separates or is separated by the event of death itself. On the one side of death is this present age, as the New Testament calls it, the life that we are now living, and on the other side of that, is the age to come, the life that we enter into starting at our death. In the introduction, I sought to press the point that we are fully aware that we are to die. And before death ordinarily comes uh, decline and a wasting away of our physical and mental powers. But Paul points out at the same time, in Christ, our inner person is being renewed day by day which gives him strength to endure the difficulties that he endures and faces them with hope. And so likewise, the sustaining reality that enables us to press forward is knowing that death is not the end, but rather the beginning of a new chapter in which we will be reborn in glorified bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. And the new heavens and the new earth and we ourselves will be filled with glory. But until then, we groan like a woman in childbirth for the coming of Jesus. And so that's what we saw two weeks ago, which brings us to verse six. And in verse six, we read, so because of these things, we are always of good courage. And Paul is repeating here an idea that he mentions earlier with a different phrasing of what this knowledge of what happens after the great divide, what what that actually does in the life of the believer. In chapter 4, verse 16, he wrote, using a different phrase, so we do not lose heart. But here in chapter 5, verse 6, he writes, so we are always of good courage. And those are really like poetic parallels. 
In other words, having a heart that's not cast down, that has not been lost, if you will, having a heart for something is equated to having good courage. Somebody says, take heart. What they mean is have courage. But what we find here is not an exhortation of what we should have, but a statement of fact of what Paul indeed has in his experiencing. For Paul, he says, if he's not lying to us, he is always of good courage. Now, this is one of those verses I think that we can take like this and, and, and create a kind of an idealism of always being courageous. That's what Paul happened to Paul. This is what happened to him. This is what happens to his companions. But an idealism that becomes unrealistic and is not, quite frankly, the experience of most Christians. We can imagine somebody, perhaps you've been this person or you know somebody with this kind of an idealism, a well-meaning friend who is trying to honestly respond to our own honest confession. We say, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling fearful, I'm feeling despairing, I'm feeling crushed because of life's difficulties. And they quote a verse like this or something like it, and they say, well, you know, if you believe the word of God, like Paul, you will always be of good courage. And we feel a slight hint of rebuke or maybe a strong sting of rebuke from that. Being addressed in this way by a well-meaning believer can add guilt or shame to our already long list of felt failures. We may question the wisdom of our being so honest with our friend the next time. I'm just going to keep my trap shut about this. Or perhaps wonder if there's even any use trying, because there we are trying to confess, and the response is further guilt and shame. But notice that this statement... Therefore, we always have courage. This statement is written and lived out by the person who in this very letter confesses his daily anxiety, his fear, his being burdened, his being crushed and even despairing of life. And yet, despite these feelings, he says, we are always of good courage. So Paul speaks of a courage that is concurrent with or happens at the same time as these other feelings. They're not mutually exclusive. He has not learned, as the Stoics taught, to bypass these weaknesses and live untouched by life's difficulties. The idea of the Stoic was, you know, to be able to impassively, like without feeling, break your arm and just have be indifferent to it completely. That was like the stoical ideal. And so likewise, when things come along in life and you suffer the difficulty through them, that you just like are unmoved by them. That, that's not Paul whatsoever. But what we see in Paul is a courage that is lived simultaneous to these trials and confessed heartaches. Which brings us to the second half of verse 6. He says, we always have courage because we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So here in the second half of verse six, Paul gives a specific reason for this courage in the here and now. And the word that is translated here by the ESV can carry the idea. We, it's translated at home, but it, but it doesn't mean just the house or the dwelling or the place that you are. It means your place, your people, your nation your country, in other words, where you belong. This is more than a house. 
This is a little wordplay here. More literally, the ESV doesn't translate it, but more literally, the verse says something like this. We know that while we are in our place at home in the body, we are away from our place at home with the Lord. It's the same root word for both with different prepositional prefixes. It's a little wordplay. But these are both the believers' homes. One is a place at their home here away from the Lord. The other is at home with the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying that in reality, both of these places away from the Lord and with the Lord are our place. To be in the body and away from the Lord. But to be in one of these two places in body or with the Lord in our present experience are mutually exclusive. But a day is coming where those two will be the same. We will be in the body and at home with the Lord. We can't presently be in both places at the same time. To be in our body is to be absent from the Lord. But to be with the Lord is to be absent from our body in the present here and now. Now, I find this an interesting concept if we think about what Scripture reveals about God's presence. I mean, we teach our children and we perhaps learned early in our theological days that there's this word we, we use called omnipresence, that God is omnipresent, means he's present everywhere. As we read in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? That's the rhetorical question that he's going to himself answer. If I ascend to heaven, like if I could fly up to heaven, well, there you are. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I, if I die, if I go to the grave, he says, there you are. So as high as you can go and as low as you can go, God is there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, in the, in, in the, the ancient mind, the uttermost parts of the sea is the furthest away from any place that you could be. He says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So in this beautiful passage in Psalm 139, the psalmist concludes that no matter where he is in the world, God is present with him. More pointedly, Jeremiah 23, verse 24 says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Like any place you can hide, kids, if you go in your closet and, you, and your parents don't see you and you got that pack of bubble gum and you start eating the first piece and then the second piece and then the third piece and you eat the whole pack and mom and dad don't know until they find your wrappers later. So be sure to throw them away, but don't, don't tell them I told you that. But can you hide yourself in a secret place so that God does not see you? No, the answer is no. Declares the Lord, do I not fill heaven and earth? Like there's no place you can go where the Lord, the living God, does not, is not present. And so we see from this, the presence of the Lord fills all the places of the creation. Again, there's nowhere we can go in this world where God is not with us. So from these passages, we can conclude that God is always with us, always present, and yet always uh, near us. He has promised never to leave us nor forsake us, yet... Paul says this strange thing. It's not the conclusion you would ordinarily draw. To be here in the body is to be absent from the Lord. This is a bit of a paradox if we stare at it for very long, which I want to do for a moment. But both of these are true. The, the God who fills heaven and earth where we cannot go to flee, and he has promised to always be there to comfort us and never leave us nor forsake us, 
The reality is that in my present body, in your present body, you are in some significant way absent from the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. So are we with the Lord now? Just remember this. What's the answer? Yes and no. I haven't pulled that one for a while. But how is this so? Well, here's one way to sort this out and I think to think about it. Think of God as the personal, conscious, living being who is the perfection of truth, beauty, and goodness. He's the perfect spiritual embodiment, if you will. It's a little bit of a contradiction, but you get the idea, I think. He is the perfection and the fountain of all truth and beauty and goodness. He is the absolute source of all life and light. That's, that's God. Yet we live in a world where there's falsehood, ugliness, Evil, death, and darkness. So in one sense, does God fill everything as it presently is? Well, in another sense, you're like, no, because if it was full of his presence, we would only know truth, beauty, goodness, life, and light. But it's, it's intermingled now. Our present embodied experience is spoiled by the effects of the fall as long as the creation is left in its current cursed condition. It is in this cursed world and broken relationships with others that we feel the weight of sin. In this world, we feel often the face of God hidden and obscured. We don't feel the fullness of God in his original good creation. To be fully present with the Lord, to be at home with him, is to dwell in the place where there is unmingled and uninterrupted experience of truth, beauty, goodness, life, and light. And this ain't it. That is what is to be in the age to come. In this world, we have experiences of this glory of the Lord that pierces through the darkness like a sunbeam pierces through the dark clouds of a brooding storm. You've seen it, haven't you? Where the storm comes and everything's dark and suddenly it opens up right in the center and this beam of light shoots through and you just stop and you stop your car and you start paying attention. You're, look at that. That's what it's like in this world. The darkness and the storms and the difficulty, but occasionally these are shafts of light that pierce through, if you will, from the heavenlies. It is these shafts of joy that C.S. Lewis tells us about where truth, beauty, and goodness break through the darkness. These experiences, experiences, which we know in a thousand different ways, evoke us to love, admiration, joy, pleasure, and cause us to long for something else, someone else, someplace else. Which brings us to verse 7. Just talk about the life of faith then in the midst of the storm where these beams are shooting through, where we see the presence of the Lord kind of sneaking in. And we realize there's something on the other side of the clouds that I'm absent from. Because of the glory that will break through, the darkness will one day disappear and unclouded day will dawn and never set again. 
And because of this, verse 7, Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, walking is a common metaphor in all kinds of literature for our conduct of life, our daily habits, the ways in which we live. And Paul uses this metaphor of walking to contrast two ways of walking, two ways of living. The first is what he calls walking by sight. Walking by sight, which the sight itself is also a a metaphor. It's a multiple metaphor to metaphor. It's walking by sight. It doesn't mean literally picking up your feet and, and looking out where you're going. The walking is a metaphor and the sight is a metaphor. Now, the sight certainly as a metaphor includes the things that we physically see by and large. But this walking by sight philosophically has been known as empiricism. And empiricism in its most simple form is that we can know what we know can know about the world is primarily through our senses. What we see, touch, taste, hear and smell like. How do you know? And a philosopher says anything that you like reason out or anything that you have by faith or any, you know, none of that counts. It's only what you can personally tangibly experience. That's empiricism in its most fundamental form. We can't know anything other than what we experience empirically, they would say. If anything cannot be personally experienced in this way, there's no reason to believe it, much less live by it, they would say, the empiricist would say. A lot of modern science or segments of modern science are, are very much driven by this idea of empiricism. It is to make what we empirically experience the ultimate definition of reality and nothing else. That's, that's, that's a fancy way of explaining what Paul says, walking by sight. It's got to happen to me. I've got to see it. I've got to know it's real. I've got to experience, or I'm not going to believe it. And I'm not going to live by it. The other way is what he terms walking by faith. And here Paul's not discounting the importance of our senses, for we're embodied beings. We have sight and hearing and smell and touch and taste. We We are embodied beings that have to use these things to get around in life. But he's talking about our ultimate commitment and what defines our life. What is most foundational and fundamental to the way that we interpret the world for some is walking by what I empirically experience. For others, it is faith of what can't be seen, what can't be known and what can't be personally experienced. Take, for instance, an ordinary woman who's living this life walking by sight. What conclusions might she draw by merely walking in this way, living in this way? She may conclude because of her chronic health problems that if there's a God, God is angry with her. She may conclude that because marriage, her marriage is difficult, she has married the wrong man. She may conclude that because she can't have children, God is punishing her for some unknown sin. If such a God exists, she may conclude that because she has never seen anyone raised from the dead after death, nothing ever happens. She may conclude because she has never seen God directly that there is, in fact, no God. She may, in fact, conclude that because of the profound depth and breadth of evil in this world, that if God exists, who could stop it and he doesn't, then he is evil and unworthy of worship. That's all that's all living by sight. That's that's. Personally, rational, reasonable empiricism. They're fine, fine conclusions to draw. 
But take another woman who walks by faith. She has these same experiences and thoughts, but lives her life differently. Because of what God has revealed in his word, that he is a good, wise, and sovereign God, though she doesn't fully comprehend how can we understand the mind and the experience of the infinite, she has a trusting faith in this God and his promise to work all things for her good as she loves him. She believes, though she has not seen it, that Jesus died for her sins and was raised from the dead so that now she knows that God loves her with an everlasting love. Because he loves her, nothing she experiences is from his pure wrath. She believes that though she is aware of her continued sins, there are consequences, but those consequences are the wise discipline of a loving Heavenly Father. And that the discipline is to wean her from sin as well as trusting in the things of this world. Those are two different, very different women with the same data, with the same information, with the same experience. One is walking by faith, the other is walking by sight. These are just some of the differences between walking by faith and sight. So that Paul says, while at home in the body, we are those who walk despite our now experiences with God who is revealed in his word and through Jesus, and we believe it, and it changes everything. So in verse 8, Paul repeats himself, giving a kind of amen. He's already said, we are of good courage. Verse 8, he says, yes, amen, we are of good courage because of this. A kind of affirmation to his own statement. He and his companions are of good courage despite their trials. And then he makes another statement about his preference. And Verse 8b, if you'll look there. Given all of this stuff, what does he say? Verse 8b, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. While this is only a passing statement here in, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians, he expands it more explicitly in Philippians chapter 1, 22 to 24, where he says this. If I am to live in the flesh, that is the body, that means fruitful labor for me. That means I got something to do that's going to bear fruit if I, if I stay here in this flesh, in this body. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Being in the body or away from the body, present with the Lord. You know what? I, I, I'm not sure which one I should do. I'm not sure what, which one. Verse 23, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. I mean, if you had a way out from the life of Paul that could take you into the presence of Jesus and joy, you would say, that's a no-brainer, right? But Paul says, if, if it were up to me, I don't know which one I would choose. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is, he says, to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. Like, that's <laughs> not even to be compared. But Paul says this, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul admits that his desire is to part and to be with Christ, which is far better than remaining in this world for him. I mean, think about all the stuff we've talked about that he suffers. And just as a side note, it could be that many of us don't long to depart to be with Christ because we can't imagine that that's better than our life now. We just can't imagine something that's better than what we have now. Yet others of you know exactly what Paul's feeling and you say, I know exactly what he's talking about and I would far long 
to be out of this place and in the presence of Christ. So some of you know what he's talking about. Others of us, it's like, well, conceptually, I can think that'd be a good thing, but my life isn't that bad, and there are a lot of things to enjoy, and like, I just, who wants to float on a cloud and play a harp for the rest of eternity, which is, by the way, not what heaven is. But conceptually, he says, I, it's far better to go. As clear as it is for Paul that his life is one of such incredible difficulty and that is far better to escape into the presence of God. There's something that weighs the scale in the other direction. So the choice is difficult for him. It's no longer an easy one. Imagine all of Paul's physical suffering, the criticisms and struggles caused primarily by people he was trying to love and people he was trying to reach. If he'd just become a private Christian and gone into retirement, he could have escaped 99% of his suffering. So what is it that makes him want to stay in it? It is Paul's love for the church. It is Paul's love for the lost. And it is Paul's love for Christ's love for the church and for the lost. It's like a man who's been found in the ocean floating after a shipwreck. He's starving, dehydrated, stung by jellyfish, nibbled on by sharks, freezing, exhausted, nearly drowned, and clinging for his life. And a boat comes along and offers to pull him out where all of his wounds will be healed, his strength restored, and never will he have to swim in that ocean again. A no-brainer, right? But the man says, I can't leave. I can't get out and go with you. I, that's far better. But there are people here I love and I must be a part of their rescue and encouragement. In that case, his remaining is not for himself, but for those that he loves. The fruitful labor is for the good of God's people and for the lost. Which brings us to verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So that regardless of Paul's location, whether here in the body or present with the Lord, his aim is, his goal is pleasing the Lord. Now, this might cause us to pause and ask whether Paul has somehow slipped into his old, old ideas about salvation and the law. Has Paul forgotten that Christ died for his sins? And he doesn't have to please God because God is pleased because of Christ on his behalf. Has he forgotten that Christ died for his sins and because of Jesus, he's completely accepted by God and loved without limitation? Is his mind slipping in the fact that he has a righteousness that is not his own, but is by faith in Jesus Christ? If he hasn't forgotten these, then why is he trying to aim to please Jesus? Well, remember the old paradigm that says he's not making it his aim to please the Lord to be accepted by him, but rather because he is accepted by him. And because he has been so loved, he has a love that compels him to want to have the smile on Jesus in what he does. He wants to please him in the here and now and isn't saying, well, I just can't seem to please him here, so I can't wait to go to heaven so I can be perfect, then I'll please him. 
Paul is compelled by what is to come and what Christ has done to aim to please him in the here and now. So we don't we don't have a pacifist sanctification guy who just says, well, we're all sinners. I guess there's nothing we can do until Jesus comes. I'm always going to be in our imperfect. No, he says we make it our aim to please him. But he also, as we move to verse 10, realizes that before this very Jesus, he will one day stand to give an account for this life in the body. And he wants Jesus to be pleased. Verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. He looks forward home to being uh, to being at home with the Lord. He knows that there awaits an event on the other side. And that event is judgment. It's like, I can't wait to go be with Jesus so I can be judged. I can't wait to go before Jesus so that he can sit on his judgment throne of glory and examine my life. That's what he says here. We make it as our aim to please him because the day is coming that after death, Jesus will sit on his throne and judge every single person. Now, judgment, when we think about the term judgment, judgment in the simplest terms is the ability to look at something and make a distinction between things. That's to judge something is to make a distinction. It can be a judgment of taste, like something that is sweet, sour, salty, spicy. Those are judgments in taste. This is, ooh, this is sweet or salty. You're being a judge. It can be a judgment of temperature, like, oh, this pool water for Ellie is too cold, or it's, oh, it's warm. It feels like bath water. That's judgment. It's, it's making distinctions. It can be a judgment of sight, like, oh, it's really getting darker in, in the evenings later, or it's really getting light in the mornings earlier. That, that's a judgment of being able to perceptively see something. It can be a judgment about sound. Well, that's, that's so soft, I can, I can barely hear it. Or that's loud, it's starting to burst my eardrums. Those are all judgments. Judgments are just distinctions. But judgment throughout the Bible is most often associated with the distinction between good and evil. God is the ultimate discerner, judge of what is, what qualifies as good and evil. We are told that every human being that lives will one day be judged by God, brought before him to give an account of every one of our thoughts. He's going to judge every single word that we've ever spoken, every single thought, every single deed, and it will be judged, discerned by God, who is the absolute judge as good or evil. God will make a distinction between them. But now we raise the question in this verse, who is the we all? For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And and to summarize the question, is the we all here a judgment only for believers or is this a judgment of all people? And I raise this question because in one particular theological system that many of us either grew up in or have been influenced by in, in particularly in the U.S., one particular theological system says there are actually multiple judgments. One, this one here, they say in 2 Corinthians, happens at the death of every believer called the Bema seat of Christ. This is a judgment immediately by Jesus, whether we we are good or evil, and then, then our destiny is kind of assigned to us at that point. It's only for Christians. It's only for Christians when they die in this particular theological system. 
The system also says or sees a second judgment after that one, which is found in Matthew 25, the throne of glory judgment, when Jesus returns with the glory of his father and of all his angels, and he will gather the nations before him that somehow nations as kind of entities are gathered, you know, there's this nation, this nation, this nation are gathered, and then he, he declares a judgment. That's a second judgment, which he, which he gives when when he comes at the at the end of the, well, depending on what your system is, at the end of some particular period of time. But then there's the third judgment. I mean, Jesus is going to sit on this throne apparently three times. Is the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, which is only for the wicked. So here we have three different judgments and three different events and three different audiences of the judgment and so on. Well, without getting into the details, my understanding is that all these passages are a reference to the same event described in different ways in different groups of people and what will happen. But it is one in the same event, including all people who ever live, including this one. So the we all here for me to answer the question is we all means all we all y'all. We all, y'all. In other words, 2 Corinthians 5, Matthew 25, Revelation 20 are the pinnacle event, climactic event that divides this present age and the age to come. And there's Jesus on his throne, judging the nations, judging all individuals, judging all peoples, living and dead. It's what he describes in John chapter 5. The time is coming when all who are in the grave will hear his voice and those who hear his voice will rise. And those who have done good will rise to the the, the blessing of the, the, the kingdom and those who rise and who have done evil, the blessing, or, or not the blessing, but of the, the resurrection of condemnation. It's all the same event. I call it eschatology for dummies, because give me one to remember, I can remember it. Once you start dividing them out, I can't remember them all. So my conclusion is that we all in this verse is all-inclusive. One of the reasons I think that this is the case is that if we limit this passage only to Christians, it creates a problem in my mind, which is that Paul would be saying that Christians at this Bema seat will receive what is due, Greek word komidzo. They will receive the payment that is due for both the good things they have done in the body and the bad things they have done in their body. We know that reward is what is due for doing good. And punishment is what is due for doing evil. So if this is only Christians, what I perceive Paul is saying is here is like, imagine yourself standing and now you have an entire list of the things that you've done that are good and the entire list of things that you have done bad. And now what you are going to do is get the reward, the due reward or punishment for each of those things on that list. Well, A, I don't hear any gospel in that. <laughs> and because all of my good deeds are mostly spoiled by my evil, like my, my con column is way longer than any good column I could ever imagine. And it doesn't say here, here anything about the substitutionary death of Jesus. It just simply says, he will re render you what is due in your body for good and evil on that day. That, that's There's no substitution here. There's There's no gospel. It's just... You're going to pay. It's a kind of purgatory, but worse. You will, you will suffer hell for all of your evil deeds. And I think that's hugely problematic with both Pauline and biblical theology. 
Paul would be saying that all Christians will be given uh, at the judgment seat simultaneously both rewards and punishments for everything they have done in this life. So in light of Jesus receiving what is our due, what is our due, him receiving it, the punishment for all of our sins on the cross, I find it difficult to understand or believe that we also will pay for all that is due to our sins at this judgment. So I, I don't think it's just Christians. So I believe that this is a judgment of two categories of people, which in the end will be declared as good or evil. And good or evil based on a number of factors, but particularly in relationship to Jesus. So that when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, some of us want to humbly say, oh, there's no one good. There's no not one. There's a... Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus says, come to you who have received the glory of my father for whom the, the kingdom has been prepared. There's the judgment of the righteous deeds of the saints. We find in the book of Revelation that the righteous deed of the saints are the white robes that cover them, the deeds that follow them. So we want to be reformed and humble and understand the categories of sin and all of that. But there is a biblical doctrine of the goodness of the believer and the righteousness of their faith and acts. It's too overly humble and not, I don't think, biblically, theologically sound. So he's, there will be those who will be declared to be good. Now, the basis of their goodness is another question, but... To receive in the body good and evil, there are these two categories of people. What makes the good good, if you will, is not that they somehow pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and figured it out better than anybody else, but that they walked by faith. They still had remaining sin. They still struggle with all kinds of failures. But the difference is those in the good category have walked by faith truly, but not perfectly. And then there are those who are the bad who've walked by sight. Walking by faith is the kind of life that, as Paul's reference, is pleasing to the Lord because it is lived in relationship with him and his word. The other is displeasing, walking by sight, because it is lived with one's back turned to God and a rejection of his word. So I believe that this judgment is two categories of people and it includes all of humanity. And based on one's relationship to Christ by faith will be declared good, well done, good and faithful servant or depart from me, you evildoer. So this judgment is what Paul says we must all appear. Now, this word means more than a mandated showing at an event. I, I I got a letter from the government a few months ago that said you are mandated to appear at the court as potential potential jury duty. And I got called and served on jury duty that week. And we think of appearance like a mandate being mandated to appear. But this word means more than that. It's just like you're going to be a judgment whether you like it or not. You know, well, that's true, but it's more than that. It means to be exposed it's not only a mandate to stand before the, the judge and the court, but to be revealed, to be exposed, to be shown for what we really are. We must all be exposed before the judgment seat of Christ is literally what this text is saying. 
This isn't something that we do ourselves. We say, well, I'll show you a little of this, and I'll show you a little of this, and I'll show you a little of this. It's like, no, everything will be stripped away, and what we are will be fully exposed before the presence of God. This is not something we do ourselves, but something that God does. There's no cross-examination, no opportunity for rebuttal. The Lord himself is the one who declares the nature of our life. Then based on his declaration, he rewards or punishes. And the one who makes such a judgment is Jesus Christ. This is his judgment seat. This isn't a generic God, but the God-man who has been raised from the dead, who will sit on the throne over all the nations. So, as we conclude, as we've come through these last verses, we've seen that suffering and decline and death is inevitable. So the question arises, how is it that we can maintain good courage in the midst of this universal reality as we leave here this morning? Because as we leave here, we're going to experience through the news and through personal suffering and everything else, we're going to, it's just going to accumulate And that's something about the weight of age is you accumulate the weightiness and the knowledge of the world's suffering that as a young person you typically hear don't experience in the same way. So how can we leave here this morning in good courage? Well, first we can remember that whatever happens in this body, the change to come will take us into the full and unfettered presence of the Lord. Whatever happens now, the time is coming for the believer that full and unfettered truth, beauty, goodness, life, light, every tear will be wiped away. Death will no longer have its sting. We will dance on the death, the grave of death itself. So knowing that, we now look for and cherish those shafts of truth and beauty and goodness and life and light that pierce through the darkness and we take hold of them and we grip them and we are grateful for them and we're thankful for them and the clouds close back up and that shaft disappears, we let it go and we look for another. Because we believe that's the nature of reality piercing through, not the darkness that covers it. We look for and cherish the shafts of truth, beauty, and goodness that pierce this present darkness. We celebrate because the world that is to come is represented not by today's bad news stories and headlines, but the truth that is to come is found in the shafts of light pointing us to a greater reality. Also, we labor in this life knowing that what is far better is to be with the Lord. We admit that. But we also realize we are presently swimming about in this dark ocean with a mission. It is a mission of rescue for those who are drowning and who will soon be swallowed up in judgment. It is a mission of encouragement for our fellow Christians in the ocean with us who are trying to keep their head afloat with so much struggle. We then choose to stay in it and fight against the darkness by faith as we are buoyed by the hope of the judgment to come. Next, we remember our call is to aim to please Jesus, not others, not even ultimately ourselves. We do this by living a spirit-enabled life of faith. This won't eliminate the things that plague us like fear, anxiety, despair, and weakness, but it will enable us to continue in this long obedience in the same direction with courage. 
Finally, we live knowing that the day will come when everyone, including ourselves, will be revealed. Those who live a life of faith in what is unseen and eternal will be distinguished from those who live a life of unbelief. And so for those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, I have some good news for you this morning. And that is that God has sent his son to be a sacrifice for all sin. And from everything that separates you from God. He has offered to you to live a new life in this world by faith, which will conclude with your standing before the judgment seat of Christ himself. You want to be trusting in the one that is going to judge you. You don't want to be opposing him. And with the following of Jesus, you can then, based on Jesus's works, sacrifice and resurrection, not only experience truth, beauty and goodness, but one day become the very part of truth, beauty and goodness in the world to come. This is God's offer to you, and I urge you to receive it today. Let's pray. So, Lord, we are grateful for the knowledge that you gave and the experiences of Paul to teach us, to instruct us in the way of Christ. And we pray your blessings as we have heard and now seek to walk in obedience to it. We pray in Christ's name.